As we come back together this morning, I want to uh, quickly remind that we are, we are going through the opening sections of Romans, and that the big heading here is the righteous acts of God. That is, as Paul is going to walk through the problems of human interaction and divine interaction, He's got to first make the case that there's something wrong on our vertical relationship with God as well as our horizontal relationships with one another. That there's a fundamental disconnect between humanity's understanding of what goodness and righteousness is and what God's definition of those important topics, but even more deeply, the very nature and character of who we are as human beings. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning is God's longing for us to know the way he created us and the opportunity and the joy of what it means to be created in his image, what it means to be human, and the challenge that we face as people this side of the fall and before glory as we wrestle with everything that would tempt us to be anything but the way God designed us. So let's put the text in front of us first. We'll go to Romans chapter 1. I'll just be reading verses 26 through 32. Hear now God's word. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the, uh, and the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and consumed with passion for one another, men committed shameless acts with men, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up and debased, to debased minds to do what ought to be, uh, what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness and evil, covetousness and malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliceness. They are gossips and slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we imagine that it was uh, not fun for Paul to write those words any more than it is uh, delightful for us to continue to wrestle with the human condition. It is hard to have a mirror put up to who and what we are apart from you. And even our desires when you show yourself to turn to things that cannot fill us. We pray this morning that you might be gracious by your Holy Spirit, that the mirror you hold up to us is one in the context of your love and grace. You show us who we are so that we might be free, free from it, free from its destructive power. We ask, Lord, that that would be the motivation and the heart of all that's said this morning the love that sets us free. And whatever is not true and useful for the building up of your people, may those words quickly 
be forgotten. In Christ's name, amen. So that question, what does it mean to be human? Uh, is not a question that they started asking in the Enlightenment, interestingly enough, uh, but they've been asking it for quite some time. What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to engage in the process and the practice of being a human being? And not surprisingly, again, uh, the answers that were being wrestled with in Paul's time were simply rehashed and repackaged in the Enlightenment, but they're old, old ideas. The first is that matter is all there is, and therefore human beings are merely flesh and blood. We are simply animals. Whether the Greeks thought we evolved or whether they just simply thought we were human beings, there was no understanding uh, when you came to the Epicureans, or even the Stoics, that there was much beyond human beings, much beyond uh, flesh and blood. And if there were any gods, they were a long way off, and they certainly didn't care what we did. And so a purely animalistic human sense that there really are no morals except for those that we wrestle with in our attempts to maintain our status and a measure of happiness. So the Epicureans, much like the materialists of today, didn't give much credence to a spiritual reality. But of course, just like today, uh, back in uh, the time when Paul writes this book, you've got Platonists, you've got uh, Aristotle's uh, followers, you have a traditional view that says, uh, much like our Buddhist friends or our Hindu friends, that we are spiritual beings trapped in this mortal flesh, and that the hope and the goal is to some point, at some point, leave this flesh and blood uh, existence and escape to a more perfect spiritual reality. But by and large, that has very little to say about our morality. And thank goodness, someday the nightmare will end and we'll all get to be spiritual beings again. Some of us becoming a part of the oneness, perhaps others imagining that we become shades or some spiritual manifestation of ourselves. But nonetheless, we are spiritual beings trapped in mortal bodies. And when Paul begins to unpack the tradition of the Jewish understanding of what it means to be created in the image of God, transformed by the death and resurrection of Jesus, we have something that neither the, the, the Epicureans or the Platonist tab, which is an understanding that the spiritual and the physical world were meant to be together perfectly and in harmony. I've said many times that if you were to ask Adam and Eve prior to the fall, whether they were spiritual beings or physical beings, they really wouldn't have understood the question. It was so seamless the way that they interacted with the divine. God came and walked with them in the cool of the day, heaven and earth had a seamlessness to it. The place where God dwells and the place where we dwell were perfectly united. The angst we have about being spiritual and physical beings was not present before the fall and will not be present in the new heavens and the new earth. We won't really understand the question because we don't understand the separation. We won't feel it and we won't know it because it will have been healed.
But as we wrestle in this in-between time, between uh, understandings of human beings as either animals or spiritual beings trapped in a physical body, or the Christian understanding of two things that were meant to always be joined, both with value and eternal glory and weight, inseparable in the divine mind. We come up with new ideas. Paul's already started to unpack in this section the fact that we, we knew God. There are things in creation, the glory and the generosity and the abundance of God. But we also made the point that what creation doesn't teach us is morality. And that is something that comes from our connection to the divine. And even that, though marred by sin, is still present in the human consciousness. And so Paul begins to unpack what is true, not just of the Gentile pagan sinners, but the temptations for all of us to be something other than what God originally designed and created. And so we'll look this morning then at what it means to understand a glimpse of Paul's wrestling with the people in Rome of how and why they should care about who and what they do and think. So first of all, we're going to talk uh, about the always and certainly no more controversial today than ever before, sexuality. Then we're going to talk about self-orientation. And then we'll bring in conclusion, hopefully uh, something far less ominous than it sounds, righteous judgment. Sexuality, self-orientation, righteous judgment. First of all, sexuality, verses 26 and 27. Uh, again, this would be news to the Romans. The, the folks who had grown up apart from a Jew, Jewish worldview, Paul's declaring that same-sex activities and, and attraction are not in line with the created order was not really something widely held in Roman culture. There was an expectation that you needed to have Roman children, but what you did the rest of the time was really your business. There were always, of course, uh, quote-unquote conservative scholars like Seneca uh, who, who might say, well, these things have really degraded our culture. But on the whole, Romans wouldn't have known that what Paul was delineating here is something that was out of God's original intent and design. It is sometimes suggested uh, in these days that what Paul is talking about here are very specific kinds of same-sex attractions and actions. And that Paul was fairly unaware of the honest, committed, monogamous relationships between two people who are attracted uh, to the same sex. That the idea of marriage and the idea of lifelong commitments was something that was unknown to Paul at this time. History tends to say something else. So if you read the Roman commentators of the day, famously a man named Juvenal, which I'm sure is the origin of uh, all kinds of jokes, 
He delineates everything from the long-term committed relationships to the most unfortunate and abusive types of relationships, both heterosexual and homosexual. That there really isn't anything new under the sun, and that should be at least our first concern, right? Is that when somebody says we've invented something new, that that's probably unlikely. It's probably something that's been done before, just brought up again, perhaps in a new form or with new vocabulary. But scripture and I think human history shows us that really there's nothing new under the sun. And so as Paul says something that was as challenging and confrontational as his day, as it is in ours, that he was in no way simply appealing to the more conservative base within his congregation in Rome, but really and truly trying to help them understand in a classic Jewish form from the outside in. And you'll notice that many of the lists of those things which are contrary to God's design, sin, that Paul will list those things that are on the outside and then work into the things that are in our hearts and minds. Right? It's not that the first thing is the most important thing. In fact, in some ways in the Jewish list, it's actually the opposite. What is listed first is the natural result of what Paul's going to get to in his last couple of areas of indictment or encouragement. Because, as that uh, wonderful quote from Chekhov says, a man is what he believes or what he loves. And what comes out of our heart then dictates what comes after. In Scripture, Physical love is an idea of completion. It is, out of the book of Genesis, two parts that make a whole. It is throughout the rhythm of Genesis chapter 1 that you have night and day. Things that are different and yet set apart and complete what a day looks like. You have the water and the land. You have the birds of the sea and the animals of the land and the fish in the, the land, air, sea. There's not the fish in the sea are fish. I think I need to move on. I've lost my illusion. The rhythm of Genesis chapter one creation is things that go together but are not exactly the same, that complete the reality of who and what God is designing as he shows his own nature, which is Trinitarian. One substance rather different and yet completing what we understand. I just know that what we don't believe Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are just the same thing wearing different masks or the same thing doing different things. They somehow complete one another, which makes sense with all of the weight of Genesis 1 and the way Genesis 2 tells the story of the creation of Adam and Eve, that God is talking about the completion, the fulfillment of what it means to be human. And that means a community and it means a nature of a relationship that 
becomes so intimate that it is described later on or used as an illustration by God for the very way in which Christ cares for his church. It is two parts that correspond. This is the great tragedy, and I wish more translations would do this, of translating in Genesis the Hebrew word for corresponding to, to helper. Because in our mind, it makes it feel like in our own cultures that what we needed, what Adam needed, was someone to do the laundry. He didn't need someone to do the laundry. He needed somebody who was like him and yet different. This is bone of my bone and flesh in my flesh, and yet she will be called woman, not man. Because there was a corresponding and a completion to the creation of Eve. It's why Genesis 1 puts it together. Let us make them in our image. So he creates them male and female. Not that God has gender, but that there is a picture of completion. And the challenge, and the reason it appears that same-sex attraction is not a part of God's original design, is that it does not fit the pattern of completion of two that are different being made one. It is an embracing of sameness. Does that make it the unpardonable sin? Heavens no. Does it make it the, uh, the bugaboo that we've often made it in our culture? Heavens no. We have preoccupied and fascinated ourselves with something that most of us imagined we would never be tempted to do. Therefore, it was a pretty easy thing to say, well, that's what bad people do. And so there's no doubt that preaching this sermon today has a weight and a challenge because we haven't always engaged with this topic with the same humility and grace in which we treat greedy people or racists. We've coddled them in the church. Those were sins we could deal with. And interestingly enough, that's what Paul gets to later as he gets to the heart of the matter. Slanderers and gossips the things that still regularly chew up churches far faster than sexual impropriety or living a life that is contrary to the design of God in a loving and committed relationship where people really and truly feel that love for one another. But it doesn't change what Paul is saying. We can't get around it. We shouldn't want to get around it if it is a part of what it means to be free in Christ. So just as we would want to discourage the person who is obsessed with greed and money or needs to feel superior because of their gender or their race, we want them to be set free from the illusion that that gives us significance or that's the way God designed us. That when Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power to set people free, we've got to keep that in our minds that when Paul comes to this, where he begins to lift the mirror to us to see who and what we're capable of, he hasn't forgot what he said in verses 16, 17, and 18. This is not, yeah, you're free, but my stars, I'm going to have fun putting you in the chains of feeling guilty and horrible about yourself. But Paul is saying the only way you can be set free is to know what you are capable of and what is denying you. 
of what it means to be human? What is robbing you of your humanity? Because our humanity is that which God originally designed us to be, and anything else is a reinvention. Self-orientation, verses 28 through 31. This is where it gets increasingly painful. I've already alluded to it. But if not having a right understanding of the gift of physical love and all of its beauty and its fullness and what it means for two to come together to create the whole and the powerful image in creation connecting back to the Trinity that sexuality is, as awkward as that may be, given our cultural challenges around the topic, We are also equally, if not more powerfully, robbed of what it means to be human when we are increasingly self-oriented, i.e. selfish. Nothing makes me less human, that is, like God, being gracious and generous and forgiving and loving, open-handed, open door, open heart. Nothing makes me less of any of those things than orienting towards my own needs and fears and wants and desires. And when those needs and desires require that I take a couple of shots at you, when I need to make you less so that I can be more. And Paul goes through a list here of powerful ways in which moving from what the Romans may have seen as a surprise launching of morality, the things that both Jewish and Roman folks knew were pretty destructive, right? At this time, and again, I think most of you know that uh, I watched I, Claudius recently. Uh, again, fascinating, overlapping history, right? And assuming that there's a lot of gaps filled in by uh, artistic license, nonetheless, Augustus's family is ravaged by slander and innuendo. The last thing you wanted to be was one of Caesar Augustus's children. Chances are you would end up dead by your stepmother. It was awkward. It was painful. The whole way the Roman Empire worked, at least in Rome, was through slander and innuendo. And there are people in this church from the house of Narcissus who was Claudius's number two. Claudius had just passed away. He knew the politics. That family knew the politics. Whether this person was a slave or a member of the biological family, we don't know. But certainly, everybody in that church would have known the power of what it means to be covetous and envy, and that leading to murder and strife and deceit and malice, and then the number of parents uh, who were being done away with by their children and children doing away with their parents for political reasons. It was a bit of a mess. And we could say, at least we're not like Rome. But I suppose it's all a matter of economies of scale. And how much we tolerate and how much we embrace the only negative statements you're going to read in the vision and core values of CVP, desire to create an environment. We want it to be so unpleasant when it happens, that it would just feel like an invading foreign body into our community. It is the self 
orientation that is certainly no less important to Paul in robbing us of our humanity than those things which perhaps we might be able to emotionally distance ourselves from or at least find it easier to point the finger than it is to deal with some of the painful realities in the mirror of how quick I am to fall into the sins that Paul lists in verses 28 through 31. So what then is our hope? Well, our hope is righteous judgment, which comes from verse 32. Though they uh, know God's righteous decrees that were uh, those not practice such things deserving to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. So where's the gospel in that? Well, I want to encourage you, if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Psalm 82. I'm going to read this and ex do a quick exposition as I close the sermon. It's a powerful, powerful psalm. It tells us about who we are supposed to be and what God does to restore us, his desire for us. This is a psalm of Asaph. God has taken his place in the divine council. Now, if I'm Paul and I'm writing these words, sorry, I forgot to give that connection. Paul knew all the Psalms by heart, right? He just did. So when Paul's writing these words, he's not writing them, well, he's writing them with a full knowledge of the Psalms in his mind and in his heart. So imagine Psalms 82 in the heart and mind of Paul as he writes this admonition to the people in Rome. God has taken his place in the divine council in the midst of the gods he holds judgment. Think of the ascension of Christ. And Paul translating what happened to Jesus as now God asserting his power and sitting in the throne of righteousness in a whole new way. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked give justice to the weak and to the fatherless rescue the weak and the needy deliver them from the hand of the wicked everything we just read is condemnations of sin or ways in which people unjustly assault the other whether they have political power military power or just a sharp tongue Injustice happens at all levels, and the transforming power of God is that it seeks justice. The throne calls us to a higher life. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. Then from the throne we hear this. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like princes. Verse 8, arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all nations. Again, so many sermons in this psalm itself, but I want you to hear the two threads. The thread that God knows and sees and is enthroned and that Paul sees in Jesus' ministry the fulfillment and the answer to the human condition. A resurrected Jesus can address 
what we see in the mirror because Jesus took all of that on himself and so much so that his own father couldn't look at it when he was on the cross. Everything you see in this verses that may or may not be true of you that you don't want to imagine could be true of you were true of Christ as he bore them in your place. And that is the way that justice is reestablished because judgment was not denied, but it was put on the one, the only one who could bear it in our place. Freedom comes because we don't have to fix our abilities and challenges relating to sin. That comes from Christ. We're just free to confess that we have a propensity to them and that it robs us of our humanity. In Psalm 82, you were designed to be small g gods, spiritual beings, humans created in the image of God, sitting in the divine throne room. That's who you were created to be. And when we embrace sin and darkness, we become nothing more than new humans or animals. Human princes that come and go. You were called to be gods. Small g, there's only one large g god. But that doesn't change what it means to be sons and daughters of the Most High. That's your humanity. That's the meaning of what Paul is wrestling with when he wrestles with our very spirit to let go of anything else that would define who we are than God's proclamation that you are sons and daughters of the Most High. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask for your mercy and your grace. We thank you, Lord, that you, you are slow to judge, slow to anger, great in mercy. Lord, we pray that we would be a transparent people, using words to build one another up and trusting in your goodness and mercy. We thank you, Lord, that you do not show us all of our sins at once. Be patient with us. Give us strength by your spirit. Amen.